see at my start. The Bitcoin Meister. The Disrupt Meister. Welcome to this week in Bitcoin. Today is October the 4th, 2019. Yes, that's exactly nine months from New Year's Eve. So there are a lot of people born on this state. Yes, it's true. Look it up. Strong hand. Bitcoin is the next Bitcoin. Tell you about Bitcoin. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. A third by sell. Unconfiscatable. Christian. Well, as you can tell, I'm pretty excited. Your Zeep. Can people conceive your Zeep? Uh, I got Bitcoin Tina here today. There is no alternative. If you wanted to back, he's back to show today. I'm doing Bitcoin Tina. You hey, are. Adam. All right. There you are. Uh, let us talk about what we were talking about off air. Uh, Bitcoin metaphor. Pretty on about Bitcoin metaphor. You're muted. I'm muted? Oh, no. There you are. Now you're good. Okay. So. I was thinking about Bitcoin, which is probably pretty much all I ever think about. And I was trying to come up with a metaphor for what I think is happening today and has been happening for the last 10 years in Bitcoin. We're watching this amazing asset and we're watching an emerging and emerging money. And it's very, very hard for people to understand. So I like to say, and people have heard this phrase before, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And I think this is an interesting metaphor. I was trying to evolve this metaphor for, for Bitcoin. And I've come up with some thoughts on this. So here, here, here's my view of this. So imagine the world is all wandering about. We have, we have blinders on. We have, a, we, have, we have eye shades over our eyes. But we don't even know we have eye shades on our eyes. And maybe some of us also have earplugs in our ears. We don't really hear what's going on. And we're all wandering around. We're looking, how do we, how do we make money? How do we get rich? How do we, how do we succeed in life? And we wander about and we're looking for answers. And it turns out, as it relates to Bitcoin, there's a man in a square. And he's there and he's preaching. He has insights that others don't have. He's standing there and he's telling us about this thing, Bitcoin, magical internet money. His name's Trace Mayer. And he's talking about Bitcoin and he's freely giving out this information. He got to this very early. He understood it very early. And he's sharing his knowledge with everybody else. And some people come to that square and they keep their blinders on. They keep the earplugs in. They don't, they don't hear what he has to say. They don't understand what he has to say. And people wander about saying, you know, how do I go? How do I make a lot of money? How do I become successful? Trace is busy standing there, and he's, he's telling people about this, this wonderful thing, Bitcoin. 
And one person at a time, for some reason, they start to hear what he has to say. They start to think about it and understand. And there are lots of other people wandering about, and they're asking each other where to go, how to get there. So one blind man is asking another blind man where to go. And, and these are many of the traders that we see in the marketplace, not understanding what Bitcoin is, but asking somebody else, what is technical analysis after all? Technical analysis is if, if there are a lot of smart people operating in a market, technical analysis makes a lot of sense. Why do we like technical analysis? We think that insiders have some special knowledge that the rest of us don't have. And we think we can divine that through technical analysis. But what if it turns out that the people you're trying to divine knowledge from don't know any more than you? And they actually haven't helped you at all. So one at a time, people start listening. And there are several people out there. And they're talking, and they're giving advice. They're telling people what they think and not charging for it, or not charging very much for it. Who are some of those people? Of course, we have Trace, and, and, and Trace is the guy who I always look to because I've learned more from him and had to sometimes figure out what he was saying to understand what he was saying, but to put it together myself, because it wasn't always clear and obvious. A guy like Seyfedin Amos, Plan B. And so all these people come to it at different times. On a slightly different metaphor, if we imagine that a snowball is rolling down a hill, that snowball starts off very, very, very small. And it grows as it rolls down this snowy hill. So a lot of people think that Bitcoin is going to be this linear movement, that little by little, people are going to buy it and you're going to travel on a pretty much of a linear or flattening trajectory. And I, I don't think that's the right model for thinking about this at all. Because what's going to happen is that as you come to understand what these people have to say, then your blinders come off. And you start to realize that in order to get what you want, you don't have to do anything that special. You just need to buy some of this. You just need to buy a little bit of Bitcoin. As you come to understand why it's valuable, you realize that you don't have to trade it madly. You just have to hold on to it. And that over time, this thing's going to go up a lot in value. We, we hear the noise of the markets. Things move up and down, and, and it shakes our confidence because we think, that, we think that markets know. And we hear things that we learn in finance classes in schools, like efficient market hypothesis. EMH. But EMH is garbage. Because even though information may travel rapidly through the markets and may immediately impact the price for the moment, that doesn't mean that knowledge or wisdom and understanding rapidly transmits through the markets. Knowledge and, and, and understanding are much harder to come by. And Many people don't want to take the time to really try to figure out what things mean. They want to react quickly to things. So 
as people come to an understanding, then you become a carrier of knowledge and information. So you, you start off with a small group of people. And we've watched this grow in Bitcoin over time. And so you've got people like Adam, Bitcoin Meister. You've got lots and lots of other people who are teaching you about Bitcoin. And you can listen to them or not listen to them. But those who come to really understand start to figure out why this thing is valuable and why you want to hold on to it. In an interview I listened to this morning with Plan B on a different podcast, fabulous interview, fabulous podcast, Peter McCormick's. Plan B is talking about Bitcoin being worth $100 trillion, which would be approximately $5 million of Bitcoin in the year 2028 to 2032. When Preston Pish was on a podcast with Stefan Levera, Stefan nicely credited me with a question that, you know, Bitcoin Tina says you shouldn't trade. And he asked Preston what he thought about that. I'm, I'm just summarizing the question. That was a pretty long question. And Preston said, yeah, you probably shouldn't trade because you're not going to out-trade these movements. I think, I think plan B is right. I think we are going to see a staggering valuation in 2028 to 2032. And I think that number of 5 million makes an awful lot of sense. If you think you can out-trade the return going from 8,000 to $5 million over the course of the next nine to 12 years, I can tell you there's no way you're going to do that. It's not possible. Because first of all, if you're in many jurisdictions, you're going to be hit by taxes, which is going to take a big chunk out of whatever you make. So there's simply no way you're going to do this. So what do you need to do? You need to find a position that you can buy, you can hold on to, and not get shaken out of. And acquire at reasonable prices. Anything under $20,000 is incredibly reasonable. There is effectively no real difference between buying at $3,000 and at $20,000. That's sacrilege to most traders. Oh my God, I can make so much money. Yes, but I heard a terrible story the other day. A guy I was talking to online on Twitter. I've made a comment about trading and he commented back and he said, oh, well, some people are just cut out for trading there. It's, he said he makes his income from trading and, uh, and, and, that's what he's, and that's what he's doing and that some people are just naturally suited to it. And I went to a DM because I didn't want to do this on my feed. I said, you know, people don't really properly evaluate their potential returns on their trading. They, People are very selective in the way they look at this stuff. It's like gamblers who, who go to Vegas and, uh, and they only talk about their winnings and they don't like to talk about how much money they lost. So they don't actually give you a net number. So oh, I went to Vegas, I won, uh, won $70,000. I'll tell you the prior trip they lost $75,000 and now they're in the, only in the hole for $5,000. I may be exaggerating, but we know this is true. And traders are actually not much different than this. This guy told me he was trading. He came into it in 2017. He lost 12 Bitcoin on BitMEX. He was liquidated. 
and he's busy trying to get back to one Bitcoin now. This is a terrible story. I feel very badly for this guy. But what can you do? He learned his lesson. I think he's still trading, so I'm not sure he's completely learned his lesson. Well, but you... the, the, the point here also is, if you, he didn't believe that Bitcoin is going to be worth, or he, at least he didn't have it in his mind. If you believe that Bitcoin is going to be worth a million dollars in 20 years, in 15 years, in whatever, you can't out-trade. Why would you even attempt to out-trade that? So that's the point of people opening their eyes. You've got to open up your eyes to people like Trace Mayer instead of all these fancy sets and graphics people talking this crypto noise. It's not their screen. And that's what trading leads people into. They have to trade. They have to get absolutely i i have a minor problem i have a minor technical problem give me one second adam i apologize all right everybody remember Speaking about technical issues, play this show at 2x. Always play all your shows at 2x. We're, we're talking at a like everyone. If you love Tina's wisdom, his metaphors, it's great to talk about philosophical Bitcoin. The God in the traditional finance market, actually, that's his uh, some of his wisdom definitely uh, comes from learning the, the hard way over there. Uh, are you back, Bitcoin Tina? I, I think I, I think I am. I'm All sorry. Right. Very good. Um, you talked about Plan B there for a second. I want I want to uh, share a tweet of yours, uh, which which relates to him. Whereas gold has had to earn its high stock to ratio, of course, money. Bitcoin's purely digital character enables supply engineering, which causes the stock to flow ratio to rise at a breakneck pace. Now, that's the stock to flow ratio. Uh, this is what uh, is very well known for. So, uh, if, you, if you'd like to talk about that now, uh, I just gave you a lead on into that. Adam, can you hear me? Yeah, it's perfect. Okay, no, I, I, I was using a headset. And it turns out the headset has more problems than, uh, than the Apple mic. Can you hear me now? Yeah, it's great. It's fine. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, Stock the flow. Yeah, I, I wanted to get to that. I, I, I want to, uh, do you mind if we don't get there yet? Just, just. Okay, I jumped ahead. I jumped ahead in the game. There. Jumped ahead. I jumped ahead. Yes. So, All right. so as, pe as people talk to other people and learn, I think this process is going to happen a lot faster than most people think. Because as the information spreads and as you see the price go up, other people start to get interested and start to take things more seriously. People are very sensitive to price. And so watching the price go from 20,000 to 3,000 created an awful lot of skeptics and confirmed the views of many people who didn't understand what this thing is. But it's an emerging money and it's very hard to understand. So, a model that I like to think about is looking at what happened with technology and internet stocks 
in earlier years. And I was having a discussion with a friend of mine last night. We were talking about Microsoft. And he had commented that Microsoft looks like to him that it was an obvious thing to own. Most computers were shipping with MS-DOS, and then almost all computers shipped with Windows. Uh, Mac was actually relatively small. Apple was relatively small back then. And this idea of Wintel was a very powerful concept. And, and yet, in the late 80s, early 90s, very few people understood. And this stock went up between one and 200 times, at least from the early 90s to, two, to 2000. And very few people held it and held on for that period, except for Bill Gates. And, and some other insiders. Similarly with Amazon, the only people who really held on to that were Jeff Bezos and his parents, as somebody commented on in a different webcast. So I think that when you start to come to understand what this thing is worth, little by little, you're going to want, and, and that's the stock to flow, but I'm still not ready to get there yet. You're going to see people start to front run these halvings. We're at a time right now where I think Bitcoin is insanely cheap. And so you hear people talk about what's the liquidity of the marketplace and, and this whole idea of liquidity, I think is poorly understood. Traders who are buying and selling Bitcoin are not actually adding liquidity to the marketplace. People think, oh, these traders are adding liquidity. If you're buying it at 8,000 and selling it at 8,300, you're adding de minimis liquidity. The real liquidity providers in the marketplace, well, they're, they're sell-side liquidity providers, the traders. They're not actually buy-side liquidity providers. The real buy-side liquidity providers are the deep hodlers, the people who start to understand what this thing is because they're there to buy Bitcoin at reasonably good prices, and they're the ones who are absorbing it in the marketplace. Liquidity really means can you unload large amounts of an asset or a stock at any given price. And so for any asset, it's, it's about how well you understand what the value of this thing is. And there are all sorts of time preferences that, that goes on with various participants in the marketplace. Some, some people have very, very short time preferences. Those are the traders who are trading back and forth for relatively small amounts. And then there are other people who have longer time preferences. They start thinking in terms of months and years and even longer, possibly decades. And when you start thinking in terms of that, you start to getting lost in my own thoughts here. I like that definition of liquidity. I'll tell you that. That was a good one. I want to go to how you have to think about valuing this thing. Understanding why Bitcoin is the best money in the world is probably the single most important idea in 
trying to understand Bitcoin and what qualities it has as a money. And why right now, the idea that it's gold 2.0 is probably the single most important idea and can take us to extraordinarily high valuations. Dan Held commented to me recently that he thinks thinking about Bitcoin as gold 2.0 is probably the single most important and clearest idea right now. And I kind of agree with him. I, I, I thought about it and I, I was disagreeing. And I do see Bitcoin as an ex exponential technology, but that's actually not, it's not the most important thing right now in terms of understanding why it's so important to own this. Because when you start to understand scarcity and you start to understand how scarce Bitcoin becomes and you start to understand its qualities of money, you realize that if I can acquire a reasonable position in Bitcoin today, and if it goes to the kind of values that I'm going to tell you that I think it's going to go to 10 years out, you realize that we don't even need scaling layers to work yet. It's not actually that critical because the values are so extreme. And I think the scaling layers will work, but I don't think they're that important or even that necessary. I could buy a Bitcoin today and I could sell a piece of that Bitcoin 10 years from now. This is assuming that I have income, if I have, uh, you know, money to live on along the way. And then even if we're living in a fiat world, which we probably will be 10 years from now, it doesn't really matter that I can't spend my Bitcoin directly because if my Bitcoin went from $8,000 to $5 million and I sold 20% of it, a million dollars, I could easily spend that money in the existing legacy system. So I don't even need that. I don't even need to be able to spend it on coffee and, and other smaller items because I still have ways of spending my money. But the critical thing is that I got that massive increase in value. Now, why did I get that massive increase in value? I had tweeted about art. How, why do some of these very rich guys buy art? Well, they buy it for a lot of reasons. They buy it because it's a way to show off your wealth. But wealthy families have bought art over the years for other reasons too. They, they buy it because it's a way of, of transporting value into the future. Some people hid the art away and they know that if they had to, they could move the art out of the country they're in, send it to another place and it would retain its value. People are always looking for things that can transport their wealth into the future. And that's what money does for you. But when you have as poor a money as we have today, we know that our money doesn't transport our wealth into the future. And it's a really big and it's a really serious problem. So what do we do? We flee the money that we're in and we look for alternatives that can take the wealth that we've created and maintain its buying power to some time for our future selves. 
Seyfedean talks about this as the trades we make with ourselves, and talks about how the trades that we make with ourselves are the most important trades we make. Adam talks about this all the time. And so, what do we look for? We look for things, we buy stocks, we buy real estate, we buy art, to find that thing that will transport our wealth into the future and maintain its buying power, or better yet, increase its buying power. But none of those things are as good as a really good money. Why do you think that is, Adam? Um, uh, rephrase that there for a second. I why do you think, why do you think, why do you think that transporting my wealth, keeping my buying power or possibly increasing my buying power in the future? Why are art stocks scarce? Well, scarcity, well, yeah. scarcity, scarcity, scarcity of the art. It's the scarcity of the art. It's scarcity, but there's more to it than just the scarcity. Because the interesting difference between money and everything else for transporting value into the future is that money is the only thing out there for which there is a universal preference. Styles, fashions for art change. Even for real estate, you look at New York City, the places in New York that were once the hot places to be, to live, change over time. Some period of time, it's the Upper East Side. Other periods of time, it's down in Tribeca. Where the hot real estate is, is not necessarily in the same place. Similarly with stocks too, companies change. But money is actually, ought to be the riskless asset. And effectively money, money doesn't actually change through time or it ought not. And so Bitcoin is something which is both technological but also there's a social layer to it. And it's, it's characteristics which enable money to carry that value that we create today into some period in the future. And the difference between money and any of those other things is that if I hold money today and I sell some of my money for other stuff, I sell it, I sell my money. Because that's what you do when you buy something, you're selling your money. I sell my money for a house or I sell my money for an investment or I sell my money for a car or I sell my money for clothing. People are willing to take my money because everyone has a preference for money. I forget who said, said this, it might've been Menger, I, I don't remember. That money is the most saleable good in the economy. It's the easiest to sell good. So, now what do I want in a good money? Well, we think of art as being valuable because the piece is popular for whatever reason. And 
Once the artist is dead, we know the artist can't produce any more of it. Although we still are stuck with the issue of validation. And validating art can be very difficult. There are lots of fraudulent copies of art. Not actually necessarily easy to validate whether or not the art is an original piece or a copy. And being able to validate that art as being original is actually really important. Sometimes we think of real estate as being a great way to store value. We've heard people say, they're not making any more of it. Actually not kind of, it's actually not true. How do we make more real estate? Build it up into the sky. That's it, build it up into the sky. So you could buy a nice piece of land on the ocean. And instead of putting a house there, you put a 50 story building there. And now instead of having one family live there, you have 400 families live there. And so this issue of scarcity becomes very important. And when you have something which is incredibly scarce and yet really easy to sell, it has a tremendous amount of value. And it's so hard for people to come to terms with why why this money would have so much value. And yet, I find it so hard that people have such a hard time with it because it seems so incredibly obvious to me. Well, it's partially because they want it. It's, people don't like things that are that simple. They want fancy, they want it to be able to do something super fancy, to be anonymous, uh, to be faster, to, to uh, they, they have very uh, different expectations of, they, they forget the basics of money, basically. So, in getting to the stock to flow, yeah. which is talking about essentially its scarcity, we talk about the hardness of money or its scarcity. Gold is approximately a 60 in stock to flow. So what does stock to flow mean? It means that for every year, a certain amount is produced relative to the existing stock. And for most things in the economy, those stock to flow numbers are very, very, very low because the thing is very easy to produce relative to its existing quantities. And if you want to listen to a really good explanation of this, you should listen to Plan B discuss it. But gold, we see production continue every year in the neighborhood of around 3,000 tons of gold. And so that 60 stock to flow number remains pretty constant. Today, gold has an eight-ish, 10-ish trillion dollar value. But Bitcoin's different. In economics class, they teach about something called elasticity. Ask whether or not a, a thing is elastic or inelastic. And elasticity is a really interesting concept. Do you know what elasticity means, Adam? Uh, refresh me from my uh, economics courses. <laughs> I'm happy to. So it means for any given amount, 
as the price change, what's the propensity of people to produce more of it? And this is not a perfect definition. So if you're growing wheat, let's say, and the price of wheat is, I didn't know how they price wheat, $10 a bushel, and the price goes up to $50 a bushel, and many more farmers are going to start planting wheat instead of planting other things because the profitability of the wheat is incredibly profitable. And usually those prices are pretty ephemeral. But they'll respond in the marketplace to the price and produce more as that price fluctuates. If the price goes down, they'll tend to produce less and they'll produce alternatives. Gold is today about $1,500 an ounce. If gold were $10,000 an ounce, you could rest assured that many mines, which might have been put out of commission, various exploration companies that don't find it profitable to produce gold that they might have found at $2,500 an ounce would come online. There would be more gold production, which responds to the price. And that's what elasticity is. So you've got producers responding to those prices and, and, and how much are you able to respond? Gold is a relatively inelastic commodity. It's very inelastic compared to things like agricultural products. Um, oil tends to be relatively more inelastic than other types of commodities as well. And so this creates a, a lag time in pricing sometimes we, we see because of the ability of something to come online into production. So, for, but oil, oil is actually, uh, I think it's stock to flow is actually pretty low, but I don't know what the stock to flow is. Bitcoin is the only commodity that I know of that is almost perfectly inelastic. If the price of Bitcoin were a dollar today, you would still produce 12 and a half Bitcoin on average every 10 minutes. And if the price of Bitcoin were a million dollars today, you would still produce 12 and a half Bitcoin on average every 10 minutes. And this is how it's going to be with Bitcoin pretty much for its duration until the issuance for the block reward is used up. What would happen if Bitcoin were to go from $8,166 where it is right now to a million dollars in the next 10 seconds? Hmm. The beauty about Bitcoin is that more than likely, if it popped from $8,000 to a million dollars instantly, that you'd see a lot more hashing power come online. People would throw hashing power online. And so you would actually have a slight impact on the amount of Bitcoin that was being produced. But because of the difficulty algorithm, we know that the difficulty algorithm will readjust the production of Bitcoin back to one block on average every 10 minutes. So even if the price were to change radically, instantly, 
you would only have a period of time of approximately 2100 blocks at the most until that difficulty algorithm changed where you might produce more than you might expect otherwise you would still be subject to certain limitations because there are only so many miners in existence uh, there are only so many people who know how to mine so it wouldn't necessarily hashing power right now is in the 80 to 90 exahash rate conceivably it might go to a thousand exahashes if the price were to change from eight thousand to uh, to a million dollars it depends on what's available in the marketplace and how many people have miners every miner that people had they put the the crappiest miners they'd mine with their computers um so i don't know what the hashing power would go to but we know that you might produce more blocks than you should in that in that period but the difficulty algorithm would kick in and it would readjust it so that price change would only impact the production of blocks for a very short period of time so I estimated what the uh, stock to flow numbers would look like going out to 2040. And approximately, and I don't know if this is completely right because there are issues with lost Bitcoin and I'm not completely sure how the lost Bitcoin affects, um, affects lost. Uh, affects stock to flow and it might have some impact um, I'm not completely sure about that and that's a better question for plan B but ballpark numbers you're talking about post 2020 having 56 24 2024 120 Based on the numbers that uh, that Plan B was talking about, estimating five million dollars Bitcoin, a hundred trillion dollars between twenty twenty eight and twenty thirty two, that's guesstimating a value between somewhere between two hundred and forty eight and five hundred and twelve stock to flow. Humans don't know of anything with that degree of scarcity. It's actually one person described to it scary scarcity people were selling bitcoin you're living in an amazing time we think we think back oh my god those guys who bought bitcoin at trace mayor at five cents or 25 cents max kaiser at a dollar or three dollars whatever number they're using you think oh my god if i could have only bought that bitcoin at those prices look look what i could do you're living at a time that's the equivalent of those prices. You can go up 600 times between now and 2028 to 2032, from 8,000 to 5 million. And granted, it's not 10,000 times, uh, but you probably get there in 20, 25 years. Those are staggering returns. And it's so hard to come to terms with what that kind of scarcity means. 
that you have people who are very short-term oriented in their thinking. And they're busy trying to outsmart the marketplace, outsmart other traders. And there's just very few people are gonna be able to do that. The interesting thing is that every trader who trades thinks they can. And yet, the numbers don't actually prove that. There's a tiny percentage of people who are actually able to do what they think they can do. It's funny, everybody thinks they can be Warren Buffett. <laughs> but actually, there are very few people who achieve anywhere near the returns of Warren Buffett. And yet people keep trying to do it. For most people, they have almost no advantage in trying to trade. They look at stock charts and they think they can divine some special knowledge based on the past. But it actually doesn't tell you anything. Traders will tell you, oh, of course it tells me something. I can figure out what the demand is by looking at those charts. I know that if it traded here and it traded there and I got this kind of a, I've got a, uh, a cup and saucer or an ascending triangle or a descending triangle or a flying W or head and shoulders pattern or upside down head and shoulders pattern. I know exactly what this thing's gonna do. No, you don't. Why are all those charts completely meaningless? Because what you don't know is what the guy I was talking to last night told me. The guy last night told me that his accountant has a client who's a billionaire. And this billionaire client acquired $50 million worth of Bitcoin, approximately 5% of his net worth. What those charts don't tell you is when a guy like Raul Paul or Dan Tapiero or any of these other guys who come from the legacy markets who are tied into some of the biggest and some of the smartest money in the world, when Dan talks to somebody or Raul talks to somebody or they listen to what these men have to say and understand about Bitcoin, and the guy who's worth $100 million or a billion dollars says to himself, you know, what the hell? I'll buy myself a 5% position. These guys are smart. The argument they make makes sense to me. I'm gonna buy some. Those charts don't tell you when that rich guy comes to understand that he wants to own some Bitcoin. Because he might not have even been thinking about it or doing anything when those charts were made when those prices took place. So you should be very thankful to the traders who are so willing to give up their Bitcoin for such cheap prices to you. I know, I'm thankful for it. And, oh, you continue. Go ahead, no, no, go ahead. I want you, you mentioned Tapiero. What do you, th I, I loved that video, of course, uh, that he was interviewed by Raul and, uh, what do you think about his uh, description of Bitcoin as the, uh, secured, the, the security truth machine? I think that, I think there's so much that we don't know about Bitcoin. I think we're gonna hear many, many smart people in the course of the next several years and decades 
come to epiphanies, understandings about what Bitcoin is and what Bitcoin does, that we're going to look back in the future and then we're going to say to ourselves, my God, that was so obvious. How did I not see it? So I don't know what brilliant insights people have that we will look back on at some point in the future and say, how did I not think of that? How did I not understand that? And so I, I really, you know, I really don't know. I think that there are, I try to, try to listen to what people have to say and try to understand it. I don't know if I fully understand what Dan is trying to say, but I know he's a very smart guy and I wanna to try to understand what he's trying to say because there are so many smart people out there that, that I can learn things. I, I, don't, I don't actually, I'm not completely sure what it means. And I, yet, go ahead, please. I've got another question about, because he's clearly not blind anymore. He, he admitted he was blind to Bitcoin at one point. And as you said, everybody wakes up eventually. Well, the, the smart people do at least. Uh, he, but, but speaking of waking people up, uh, he specifically said uh, that Bitcoin will, when it gets to that trillion dollar valuation, and again, now the, the market cap is whatever it is, uh, 150 billion, I don't even know what it is, but it's, it's far from that uh, trillion dollar uh, market cap valuation, that it will wake up many uh, traditional uh, type of investors. Uh, that, that's a big round number that'll uh, knock some people out of bed. Do you, would you agree with that, with your experience in the uh, traditional markets? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that price is actually very important uh, as it relates to Bitcoin, I think price, people respond and react to price. I'm a huge believer in the concept of price mechanism. Price mechanism makes our economy work. Price mechanism is critical to a capitalist economy uh, in terms of allocating resources. And I think that Dan is absolutely right. I don't know what that price is. Um, Dan has been a professional investor for a few decades. and if that's the number that he thinks, he is more closely tied to that than I am. Um, so I don't really know, but sure, a trillion dollars is, is a very big number. It's very hard for a professional investor to look at an asset like Bitcoin at a trillion dollars and say, I can just keep ignoring it. It's very hard for people who live in the capital markets who look at prices move all day long and say, I can ignore this thing that is now the marketplace is valued at a trillion dollars. And, and it's come to that valuation through all natural processes. It, it started at, at nothing um, in 2009 and 2010. And at a trillion dollars, it becomes pretty hard to ignore. So sure, I think that's, that's a very reasonable thing. Do I know what the right number is? I don't know what the right number is. We all speculate on what we think is the right number, but trillion dollars is as good as number as any other number. Now, you, you mentioned the word reasonable, and I do think it is reasonable to think we'll get to a trillion one day that would be $50,000 Bitcoin. Now, you have mentioned another number on this show, and uh, Plan B has mentioned this number also, and uh, it's the $100 trillion uh, number. 
And I could, I mean, I, I love that you make these predictions about $5 million Bitcoin. I could, I could do a clickbait headline about it. I won't because I don't do that kind of thing. Pound that like button for no clickbait uh, titles. But you do believe this. $100 trillion is a tremendous number, though. It, the, 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 all assets on the planet only add up to over $250 trillion or $300 trillion, something like that. So I, I don't want to get people too excited. I mean, this is a huge number, 5 million. I, I would be happy with 500,000 Bitcoin, $500,000 Bitcoin. Um, you are a huge believer in this, though, uh, to, to come up with that number and to agree with, uh, with Plan B. But, I mean, have you ever put that in perspective? 100 trillion compared to 250 trillion compared to 300 trillion, you know, the, the value of all assets on Earth? Well, I think your number of 250 to 300 trillion is wrong. It, okay. It's wrong by a lot. It's, it's one wrong that's quoted out there. Wrong by, wrong, wrong by a lot. So stocks are about $80 trillion. Uh, fiat is about, and, and $80 trillion could be lightish. Fiat, all money is, is approximately $90 trillion. All debt markets are approximately $250 trillion dollars real estate and there may be some double counting in the real estate because there's a lot of real estate that is uh, that is um, financed so I don't know where the double counting is in that real estate is like 250 trillion dollars so I'm guessing that those numbers are much bigger and it, these at the end of the day some of these things are just estimates um, these these numbers are I, I think the number is probably somewhere between 300 plus trillion and six, 700 plus trillion. I think the numbers are uh, substantially larger than what we hear. And, I, and I'm not sure if we have great numbers or not, but here, let, let's think about it slightly differently. And the reason I use the number 100 trillion, $5 million of Bitcoin, is what you have to think about is think about Bitcoin as repricing the world in Bitcoin. And that's kind of what really matters. So if you bought a nice pair of shoes, you might spend well, a pair of uh, Gucci or Ferragamo shoes. Those are very nice shoes. You might spend $500 for those shoes. And the question would be then, how much would those shoes be in sets? So that's what I think is going to be happening here. But, but more than just that, I think that Bitcoin is about an emerging economic paradigm. I think we're going to see the world change in very substantial ways in the 2020s and the early 2030s. I heard Raoul Paul talk about this in one of his interviews. And I've been saying this for, for quite a while. I, I think that we are going to be moving into an economic paradigm where we have money, an equity-based money, which is going to be Bitcoin in my opinion, and equity-like investments. I think we'll actually pretty much have no credit or very de minimis amounts of credit, credit, i.e. bonds, i.e. fixed income, uh, in this future world. And so we'll use, we'll use an equity-like investment as opposed to a credit-like or um, bond-like investment. It's very interesting because I commented about this 
on Twitter just the other day, and it calls me, I got a response from somebody who said, well, credit is created every time. If I grant you credit, I have created credit. So that's, that's right. So if I'm a store and I let you buy something and I don't make you pay me right now, I've given you some credit. And so there may be some kinds of credit that exists. We did used to have a world that operated that way. But the interesting thing is that, and this just occurred to me, because Bitcoin is programmable money. So if I ask you to build a house for me, you might say, okay, pay me X number of dollars up front so you can build me the house. But the interesting thing about Bitcoin is because it's programmable, because we will see some form of smart contracts on it at some point. We can now, we can already do this now with um, time locks, multi-sig, there are a lot of things we can do. I could actually create a, a method by which pay as you go. I might pay you X percent every week and you go out and you buy the materials and hire the labor for that period. And I keep you on a fairly tight leash um, I'm building my, my house, building my product, building whatever. And so I think we don't really fully understand what this economy is going to look like. And I have said that I think some of the ways we think about the way an economy must work or money must work is because of the nature of the technology which was available at the time that solve certain problems. So when we went from a real gold-based system to a banking system, why did we do that? Because I can't easily carry gold to another part of the world and trade with it. There are a lot of, there are a lot of problems with this. So if I carry, if I deposit my gold with a local bank and I get a note from that bank and that bank has a relationship with another bank in another city, I take that note, I, if I can validate that this is a good note, I, I give that note to that bank in that other city. And now I've solved a technological problem for me of transporting that gold safely from one part of the world to another part of the world. And so I think the way we do things is actually very much related to the technology which was available to us at the time which created a methodology by which the world worked. So people think the world has to work in a particular way. And what I think is that the world doesn't have to work in a particular way. The world works in a way to which there are technological responses to problems that have to be solved. And new technologies offer different answers. And I think that Bitcoin is a technology which is going to offer a set of answers which were not previously available. So I think we're going to watch the world change in ways that are very, very, very hard to imagine. And I think we'll move to a world which is one that's very much based on credit to one which is very much based on equity-based money and other type of investments. All right, so then let's, how does Libra fit into all of this? Well, 
I, I don't know how Libra fits into it. I, I'm not really concerned about Libra. I think that anything which helps to legitimize Bitcoin in the eyes of people becomes an on-ramp for Bitcoin. So what would Libra be? I know that people talk about Libra as being panopticoin, you know, the, the, the coin that everyone used to spy on you. And, and there'd be a lot of problems with Libra, but I, I don't want to talk about Libra per se. But Libra, as I've heard it described, would be a multi-currency stable coin. And as such, people can easily use it for their payments. But the difference between, see, I, I have argued that price is more than 99% of adoption for Bitcoin. People like to make money. People love to make money. And so most people buy Bitcoin because they want to make money. If Bitcoin were a dollar today, as it was a dollar back in 2010 or 2011, I'm sure we would not be talking about it. I'm sure there'd be almost no interest in Bitcoin. <laughs> people are interested in Bitcoin because they, they can make money in it. And you'll never really be able to make money in Libra because it's a stable coin. You can't make money in a stable coin. So if Libra starts to cause me, as somebody who doesn't really know or understand Bitcoin, to start to think differently about my money, odds are reasonable that Bitcoin will become something which I might also pay attention to. And if I see that Bitcoin was $10,000 in 2019, and now it's 2022, and Bitcoin is $300,000, I say, oh, it would have been nice to own some of that Bitcoin. And if I start to understand that it's gonna go from 300,000 to 5 million, I say, well, I didn't own it at, at, at 8,000, like the guys that don't own it at 400, like, like you own it at, but I can still make pretty good money from 300,000 to 5 million. Not as much as I could have made had I bought it at 400. Not as much as I could have made if I bought it at 10. Not as much as I could have made if I bought it at 8,000. But I can still make money. And that's not bad. So Libra becomes just another on-ramp for Bitcoin. And so as the process of legitimization, see, this is another thing that I think about in terms of mind share. That's the term I like to use. Bitcoin has a staggering amount of mind share relative to the size asset that it is. I think many people in the Bitcoin space, not guys like Raul Paul or Dan Tapiero, who understand this very well, but a lot of guys who are trading it now, they think of Bitcoin as being bigger than it is. And I actually think it's the most important invention for mankind and generations, if not centuries. I think it's incredibly important. But as an asset, it's a very, very, very small asset. And the amount of attention and time that it takes up in the minds of all kinds of people is absurd for the tiny little asset that it is. It's a tiny little asset. It gets coverage on CNBC. It gets presidents to tweet about it. It gets other people to talk about it. <laughs> in the scheme of things, it is not a pimple on the backside of an elephant. So that's pretty amazing. So as 
more and more people come to accept its legitimacy, that opens up the desire to learn about it and buy it. People like to make money. Speaking about uh, it, it, it's gaining some legitimacy here, I think I know your, your, what your answer will be to this. Uh, we're going to end up with a Fed coin eventually. Uh, the, the dollar will, I think so at least. Uh, that will definitely add some legitimacy to cryptocurrency as a whole. If the, if the dollar goes crypto, uh, do, do you see this? And, and something that you mentioned, you see the next decade, we'll still be living in a, do, it will still be a dollar world. But you do envision eventually it will not be a dollar world. So when, when do you think that will happen? Especially since if they make the dollar into a Fed coin, it'll be quite easy to stay with the dollar. It'll be quite convenient for people. It's not, no, it won't, it, won't, it won't actually change anything. It actually increases the likelihood of Bitcoin adoption. Well, because they'll be able to easily turn their Fed coin into Bitcoin? You'll be able to easily turn your Fed coin into Bitcoin. I think hyper-Bitcoinization takes place Hyper-Bitcoinization goes, what I like to say, goes through the bond market and the credit markets. What I think will happen at a date much later in the future, probably at a price higher than that $100 trillion mark, somewhere in the you know, $5 million plus range. It could be a little, you know, it could be less than, it could be a $60 trillion, you know, at, at $60 trillion at $3 million of Bitcoin. But I think there is at some point in time when Trace Mayer has described Bitcoin as, the, as a black hole, absorbing the value from the rest of the world. And what I think you will see at a point later in the future, again, at some price, is people sell their existing assets to buy Bitcoin. So if you have money in the bank and you buy some Bitcoin, well, you've now converted some of your fiat into Bitcoin. If you sell a treasury bill to buy Bitcoin, you've converted some treasuries to buy Bitcoin. And I think that people later to Bitcoin who might have been doubters of it and uninterested, you know, if, if at a trillion dollars, institutional money becomes interested in buying Bitcoin, what does institutional money and other people think at a million dollars of Bitcoin, at $20 trillion? That takes people who are skeptics. I, 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 in sort of a joking kind of way, I describe three types of people, four types of people with regard to Bitcoin. Skeptics, cynics, and haters. And then there are people who just don't know about it at all. So leaving those people aside, the people who don't know about it at all, I argue that skeptics, cynics, and haters, that each of those people will pay subsequently higher prices. So if you start off as a skeptic, you might have considered it at $8,000, but you don't buy it till it's $50,000. And if you're a cynic, you might have been cynical about it at $8,000. There are plenty of people who are cynical about it at much lower prices. You might not buy it till it's a quarter of a million or a half a million dollars of Bitcoin. And if you're a hater, you might not be buying until it's more than a million dollars of Bitcoin. The price of Bitcoin will push people into Bitcoin. And this dynamic that takes place that gets you to these very, very large, very extreme numbers is that think about the dynamic that's taking place with miners. So 
every day miners acquire more and more Bitcoin through their mining processes. But through the halvings, those numbers become smaller. And as more and more people begin to understand what this money does for them and why it's valuable, they want to own some of it. Money is about transporting your value into the future. So here's a question for you, a question people want, might want to ask themselves. Let's assume that Bitcoin went up by the amount of 10% a year. Forget about these super large numbers, but that it's always, you know, it's not subject to earnings. And let's say it's a consistent 10% a year. You could pretty much rely on it, not like a Bernie Madoff 10% a year, but you know, you could pretty much rely on 10% a year for an increase in value. Would you own other assets instead of owning Bitcoin? I wouldn't. You what? I wouldn't. I would not. Well, no, I, I know you wouldn't. <laughs> but I think a lot of, I, I asked a guy last night, I said, so if Bitcoin went up by 10% a year from now until forever, would you own stocks? Would you own real estate? And I think that once people start to understand why money is a better asset to store value in. So you'll always have to have investments. Investments make an economy grow. Investments are critical to an economy. I've argued that what we've done with the Fed money that we have is we've created artificially low cost of capital. We have a cost of capital which appears to be lower than it really is. And the reason I say it appears to be lower than it really is, take it kind of quickly through that thought process, is that if I invest in a project and I assume my equity, my weighted average cost of capital, weighted average cost of capital is a blend of my debt cost of capital plus my equity cost of capital. And let's assume my weighted average cost of capital is 8%. And now we take a basket of projects. So me plus thousands of other people, each engaged in our own investment, in our own projects. And we all have, let's simplify it, an 8% weighted average cost of capital. I say an effective cost of capital because of all of those projects, 10,000 projects, let's say, some percentage of those projects are going to fail because the 8% weighted average cost of capital was actually too low a number. Maybe the real number should have been 12% for weighted average cost of capital. So instead of having 10,000 projects at an effect at a weighted average cost of capital at 8%, maybe we should have had 6,000 projects or 5,000 projects at a 12% weighted average cost of capital. So then some numbers of those projects fail which might have some residual value or not. And effectively what's happened is our effective cost of capital isn't really 8%, but our effective cost of capital is really that, that 12% because we have destroyed a certain amount of capital. Now I'm not accurately going through the numbers here, but I think you can follow the logic of my reasoning. And so, Having too low a cost of capital in an economy 
is actually detrimental because it encourages taking on projects which probably shouldn't be taken on because the real cost of capital is actually much higher than what the cost of capital appears to be. Do you follow that logic? Does that make sense to you? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, the, definitely the that last part, yeah. It's not the individual project that I'm talking about. I'm talking about a larger, a systemic or an economy-wide effect. I, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I explained it well. There's a lot of projects out there that shouldn't be going on. <laughs> you know, no, that, that's what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is think about it not just as one project, but a, a large group of projects that's occurring in an economy. Do you agree? Maybe, maybe this will help. Do you, do you agree that if my cost of capital is 8%, that looking for an adequate return from those, that I would have more projects at 8% than I would have at 12%? Do you agree with that statement? Yeah. Okay. So what I'm saying is because of, because of yield curves, which are artificially manipulated by central banks, it makes my cost of capital look lower than what my real cost of capital is. And we don't find out what the real cost of capital is until the fullness of a cycle. So it looks like my cost of capital today is 8% because I'm taking the information from various yield curves plus my equity cost. Do you, do you follow the logic of that? Do you, want, do you understand how that works? I hope people do. <laughs> okay, so I estimate my equity cost of capital, the cost of my own personal equity or my business's equity. And then I take a rate which is available to me in the marketplace. If I were to float a bond or go to the bank and borrow money and I create a blended weighted average cost of capital with those two things. So let's say my equity cost of capital is 8% and to go borrow money cost me 5%. And let's say I put up half equity, half debt. So that would be combined five plus 10, it's 15% divided by two is seven and a half percent. Gives me a weighted average cost of capital of seven and a half percent. Do you follow that? That makes sense to you? Okay. So I'm saying that the market implies an 8% cost of capital. I'm just making numbers up here. I'm just trying to have you follow my thinking and my logic. The market implies an 8% cost of capital. So with that 8% cost of capital, I as a businessman run some numbers and I think I can get a certain amount of sales with a certain amount of earnings and support the project to make profits necessary to me with a cost of capital of 8%. And then I go about and I decide to do this project or not do this project if it meets that 8% cost of capital. But that's not the real cost of capital that exists in the economy. And I find out in the fullness of the cycle that a certain number of those projects failed. They weren't successful, even at the 
because there wasn't enough demand out there for those projects. So effectively, because those projects failed, that money, that capital was effectively destroyed. I basically took that money and I threw it in the garbage can. So what I netted out effectively meant my cost of capital was, and I'm making the numbers up again, 12%, not 8%. If I had built to a 12% cost of capital, then a certain number of those projects just would never have gotten built because people would have run the numbers against the 12% number and said, I, I can't make these numbers work. It doesn't, you know, my returns are not sufficient for my 12% cost of capital. And so I can't make a return which is necessary to do that project. So I don't do the project. So we create systemic mispricing in the marketplace because we have central banks which come in and misprice risk. And what I'm saying is that in an economy which uses money rather than credit, and all those fixed income instruments are credit, plus other to, to make equity-like investments, that it, that might be, that that will net result in fewer but better projects. And so I think the net result will wind up with be much higher growth because there'll be less capital destruction. And I think we're in the very, 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 very early stages of watching a new economic paradigm emerge. And I think it'll be a much more efficient paradigm. I, I think we're going to see a lot of changes that take place in the course of, uh, of the next 10 to 20 years. And I think the rate of change that we're going to see is going to be very shocking to a lot of people. I think Bitcoin is a major factor of that. I think there, you know, there are other factors as well that people talk about, which are well beyond my knowledge base or scope, things like self-driving cars, AI, various biotechnologies. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that are going to happen. Um, and I think we're going to see a very dramatic change, but I think Bitcoin is going to have an incredibly big impact. But again, it gets back to the idea, what makes it so valuable is that a very scarce money that can transport my value into the future. And that money continues to get more and more scarce. So as you start off with, let's imagine you start with 100 people understanding about Bitcoin. They see the price go up and they tell their friends and now you've got 1,000 people who all want to buy some of this. And that 1,000 then grows to 100,000 people, whatever the numbers are. And these numbers just get bigger and bigger because more and more people start to understand. And, and that's what we've seen from Bitcoin's earliest days. And what I think a lot of people don't really understand, and that's why I think we're going to see numbers that are likely in excess of what the model projects, because we know that we know what the issuance rate is going to be on Bitcoin. I think it is actually very smart to front run the halvings because on average, on average, the price is always going to be lower today than it is at some point in the future. 
If we think about price differently, if we think about price as noise around a point, so let's say the current valuation is seven or 8,000, and we've had a lot of noise around this point in the last uh, three or four years. It's ranged from $1,000 to $20,000. And the point value based on the model might be about $8,000, I think is what uh, Plan B is using. So yes, we have a lot of noise around that point. And the noise is from, I forget what the price was at the halving. It was probably, at the halving, where, 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 was, where, was, the, where was the price in 2016? 650 or something like that, 625. Okay. So 650 to 20,000. So that's a lot of noise around the point. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's statistically, yeah. you think about it, noise around the point. So if we think of it in yearly chunks, and, and Plan B has said that if you look at it in yearly numbers as opposed to daily or monthly numbers, it actually gives a stronger R-squared number, which is a, a, a tighter fit on, uh, on his regression. So. In the, in the date range of 2016 to 2020, average price is about, it's not, that's not right. The model price is about $8,000. Then the model price in 2020 to 24 might be $100,000, let's say. I'm not sure where the model price is off the top of my head. So you see a lot of noise around the point. You could have prices as high as three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, prices as low as twenty or thirty thousand dollars. But we know progressing through time that Bitcoin is inelastic because we know its issuance is pretty much set because of the way Bitcoin works. We know according to the difficulty algorithm that the most that can happen is you can produce a certain amount of Bitcoin in a certain period of time, but the difficulty algorithm is just going to kick in again and force production back to whatever the reward is then per block on average every 10 minutes. So Bitcoin is this thing that we've never seen in an economy before. And I've argued that you know, I, I mentally think of Bitcoin as being like a gecko, except it's a gecko that's turning into Godzilla. So it's going to go from this little gecko that's running around, you know, at a couple of inches to something which is, you know, a mile high. <laughs> and when it walks on the ground, the earth is going to shake for hundreds of miles around. And that's what this thing is. And so people who don't understand about how scarce this money is going to be, they're playing stupid games right now. They're playing stupid trading games. And they can, because right now, Bitcoin still acts like a legacy asset. But post the 2024 halving, it ain't no legacy asset anymore. Ooh, pound that like button, people. 2024 halving. Well, if you're, if, you're at, if you're at approximately 56 stock to flow in 2020, working your way to 120 in 2024, and gold is approximately 60 or so, 
stock to flow. That means you'll go from a gold-like stock to flow number, which we know, which we understand, to something much bigger, almost double what gold is. And then it doubles again, then it doubles again, it doubles again. And that's the point is, is gold is something that we understand. We understand that stock to flow. We have not lived through something uh, with a greater stock to flow, uh, is what you're saying. So it, right. it, so, so it morphs from a legacy style asset to something that we don't really get. We don't understand what that scarcity really means. And more and more people are coming to understand why that is money that you want to hold on to transport your value into the future. Because, you, because of all the qualities that Bitcoin has, that it's hard to seize, that it's, um, that it's easily, uh, that you can easily transact with it at a distance electronically. You know, all the qualities that Bitcoin has, which are, which are, which are many, that it's infinitely divisible. All of these various, uh, that, it's, that it's infinitely portable because it has no weight. It's easily transactable, easily securable, not dependent on a third party. All the qualities that Bitcoin has. So as you start to understand why this money is so good and is essentially fungible, because you don't really care what UTXOs were attached to the, mo to the money you're buying. You only care about it maybe if your government says something about it, but to most of the world, they don't care. They're indifferent. If you're in Venezuela, you don't care that those UTXOs had whatever attached to it. I don't give a damn. It doesn't mean anything to me. So this is a very, very special money. And it's going to be very, very scarce. It's better than that work of art. That Picasso that you bought that you paid $100 million for, well, first of all, you have to make sure that Picasso. they verified that it was really a Picasso. It was really the work of art that you bought. Well, that's expensive. You have to hire art experts to appraise that piece and to make sure that that piece is really the piece that it's represented as. Well, you don't have that problem with Bitcoin because your node verifies it for you. Boom, 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 it's done. You know that you have real Bitcoin. And that's very easy to do. A piece of real estate. Think about holding a piece of real estate into the future. You buy a piece of real estate and you want to rent it out to earn some money, to keep your value up. That real estate's a great big pain in the neck because you have to get a tenant or tenants who pay their rent or not late on their rent. Then what's going to happen with your real estate? Well, in time, you're going to have to replace the roof and you're going to have to paint the real estate. And you're going to have to fix the toilets in the real estate. And you're going to have to replace the water heater in the real estate. And you're going to have to replace the furnace in the real estate. And you're going to have to do all things to keep this thing up to snuff. That's a pain in the neck. What do you do with your Bitcoin? You buy your Bitcoin. You store it. You put it into a multi-sig. That's it. And you just, you care for those private keys. Caring for those private keys is a lot easier than caring for that work of art and caring for that building and caring for your stocks. Your stocks, what do you have to worry about? You have to worry that who's running the company? What are they doing? Are they running into the ground? What do the earnings look like? How about the new products? How about the new services? How about competitors? You don't have any of those concerns with the money. 
the money essentially doesn't change. You just have to know that counterfeit money can't be produced. But we know that counterfeit money can't be produced because we know what Bitcoin is. And we know that it can't be counterfeited. So we have something that we know is scarce. We have something which we know is incredibly easy to maintain relative to other things. It's not easy. Bitcoin is still hard to deal with. There are a lot of hard aspects to it. But as it gets easier, which it will do with development, it gets much easier to maintain. And so as that happens, the price is going to go up because people who were afraid to deal with it. Look, if you started with your Bitcoin pre-tracer, then it was relatively hard to store. People lost their Bitcoin lots of different ways. Um, you had technological development take place in this space. I was reading on Trace Mayer's website, Run to Gold. You know, he was advising, oh, I can't remember what this thing was called, but Armory? the method of, what's that? Armory? Was it Armory? No, before, before that. There, there were, you know, there were ways that were not as good and much harder. The price of Bitcoin was much lower. You could have bought Bitcoin, you know, for maybe $10 of Bitcoin at that time. You stored it in a combination of Dropbox with, uh, I, I can't remember, right? I looked at this the other day. I can't remember what it was called. You can see it on the Run to Gold website. Yeah. Well, now Bitcoin's $8,000, but there are better methods of storing it. And there will be better methods yet. You've got um, cold card, which is probably a better method. And you're going to have multi-sig. And we're going to have Schnorr, Mast, um, uh, what's the other thing I'm looking at now? I can't remember. Schnorr, Mast. I'm, I've got a... Uh, it doesn't matter. Well... But you've got, you've got these technologies that are changing that are going to make... that are going to make certain things much easier. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, we're, we're coming up on the end here. It is always a pleasure to have Bitcoin Tino on the show. He's linked to below. Check him out, of course. Uh, well, is there any, uh, any other information you want to share with us, current events, anything you wanted to comment on? Uh, on no, I, I, I only want to, stress, I want, I want to stress this fact that I'm not concerned about Bitcoin scaling. I know that its current price and where it can go in the next decade, it doesn't need scaling at all. We can use the legacy system as our scaling method. We can store it, we can store our keys, sell some and have that money available to buy whatever we want in the legacy system. And that in the course of the next decade, there'll be more than enough people, as the price of this thing goes up, we will see billions and billions and billions of dollars of resources going into development, coming from all sorts of areas which are going to figure out ways to scale this. And I think ultimately it'll be the one and only money. Because I think that Bitcoin is like a forest fire that generates its own wind. And by virtue of the fact that the value of this thing goes up, what's going to end up happening is that many problems which look like problems today start to go away as the value goes up. Because many people who own Bitcoin will start to become quite rich. One Bitcoin will be worth, in my opinion, $5 million 10 years out approximately. And so it could be 12 years out, nine years out. But think about that. For $8,000 becomes worth approximately 5 million. Maybe it's 3 million, maybe it's 6 million. But think about what that means. If you want to support a political candidate, if you gave 
a bunch of political candidates, $20,000. That makes you an important contributor. Bitcoin is going to have its voice heard. And when Bitcoin talks, Bitcoin is going to scream because you're going to have people who are worth an enormous amount of money. They will get their way because they will support candidates who do things which benefit Bitcoin. So people worry about all kinds of things, but I'm not concerned about this at all because I understand what this is and I understand how much power and influence it's going to have. When Godzilla walks, governments will tremble and Bitcoin is Godzilla. That's what the honey badger is becoming. Honey badger is growing to be four miles tall and people will yield to Bitcoin. Just remember, We don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes us. And Bitcoin will change the world. Oh, yeah. On that note, that is, that's a good way to end it. Yes, the Bitcoiners will shape the future of not just the world, but the solar system to Venus, cloud cities being built by Bitcoiners. It's going to be great. Uh, and yes, this is a golden age that we are entering these 2020s, whether it be in money, nanotechnology, so. Uh, self-driving cars it's gonna be great and i am pumped for it and i would love that in the year 2030 i would love for bitcoin to be worth five million dollars that would be great wouldn't it everyone so yeah it's eight thousand dollars today on uh october 4th 2019 for all you people with big smiles on your faces in the future of watching this thank you bitcoin tina uh you're always a great awesome guest he's linked to below follow him on twitter definitely he's great on twitter everyone should be following him on Twitter, me on Twitter, T-E-C-H-B-A-L-T. That's me on Twitter. Remember, a new show here every day. We do This Week in Bitcoin every Friday. Get all sorts of guests, the best guests in the space. I am Adam Meister, the Bitcoin Meister, the Disrupt Meister. Remember, subscribe to the channel, like this video, share this video. Check out the links below. Pound that like button. Bang that bell button. I forgot to say hello, my elite friends. So goodbye, my elite friends. Shabbat shalom. Happy New Year. We'll see you uh, Saturday night. Bye-bye. Thank you.